Welcome back to our study of St. John Chrysostom's homilies on marriage and family life. We will be picking up on page 93 in the midst of, of the homily, How to Choose a Wife. Um, before we get there, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, uh, page 93. Now we are just a little ways into this sermon, How to Choose a Wife. And so far... Uh, I think there's actually, if you'll forgive the critique, precious little about how to choose a wife. <laughs> in, in general, in general, Chrysostom has said, don't choose a wife for the sake of money. It was a very, a very popular thing um, in his time, in his era. I suppose maybe to some degree it is today, people trying to marry into money, that kind of thing. Um, but that's, that's number one. Number two is take an honest stock of the negative characteristics of your potential wife. Now, he's using the term wife. We could use the term interchangeably, couldn't we? We could say same is true for, for husband. Don't, marry, don't choose a husband for money. Don't choose a wife for money. That's principle number one. Principle number two, um, take careful stock of what, what kinds of uh, vices or negative characteristics you see within that person and determine if you can live with those until death do you part. <laughs> so to take an honest assessment, and that, again, this works whether you're, seeking a, whether you're a man seeking a woman or a woman seeking a man. Um, so often infatuation in that period sort of blinds us, and so Chrysostom would say, stop, take a step back, assess things accurately. And again, one of the, you know, for what it's worth, my two cents that I've added into this is pay attention to how the man treats those people around him, particularly those he's had long-term relationships with. Pay attention to the female, to the woman, uh, how, she, how she treats those around her. Um, how, one, how, one treats their, how one treats their parents, how one um, treats conflict in the, in the work environment, how one treats challenges that arise in a family or in a communal context. These are all, these are all good indicators, uh, a more objective indicator than how that person who is infatuated with you and you infatuated with them um, are treating each other in the moment. What happens when that infatuation washes away? What happens when you become familiar? Um, how they treat those others is likely how they're going to treat you. So, yeah, pay, take careful stock of, of the negative things. And then, and then in terms of, in terms of positive, uh, like a positive thing to look for, Chrysostom hasn't given us that much yet. Now, we'll maybe get a little bit more from him, but generally speaking, he says, look for a wife who is well-ordered and compatible with your character. Again, that shoe fits on either foot, doesn't it? That's the same that, uh, that a, a woman looking for a man, a wife looking for a husband. So what is, what is meant by well-ordered? Here, Chrysostom doesn't just merely mean neat, although that's kind of part of it, um, but rather, rather well-ordered, having God first and foremost in their life, having church at the very center with Christ and his sacraments at the heart of that. Um, you know, if you're a, what would, what would be some more specific examples of being well-ordered? Well, if a, if a wife or if, if a woman is looking at a, at a potential husband, well-ordered would be like um, he's either in school and is studying to become something or has a general plan or is working or is making his ends meet. You know, he's not just submitted himself to $250,000 worth of student debt um, with the plan of becoming an artist or an actor. Uh, you know, like that's, so when you're thinking about well-ordered, you're thinking along those lines. What would it be for a, for a well-ordered, you know, for a husband to look for a well-ordered wife? I think, I think in this day and age, sad to say, but, and very rare, but to, to look at a wife who values family, who values home life, who values marriage, 
um, who understands the role of, of what it means to be a helper and a helpmate. Chrysostom's going to talk about that in the pages to come. I know that's, that's controversial in our, in our time period, but it probably shouldn't be. Um, so just to look, you're just looking at a female with those. And then, and then compatible with our character, well, what is our character? Our character is that of Christians. And so um, if you want to go more broadly, more psychologically, then I would just say pay attention to energy levels. You know, if you've got, if, if, the, if your future wife loves to travel all the time and be at parties all the time and be socializing all the time and you don't, consider that. Consider if consider if you can hang out, if you can handle that dynamic until death do you part, um, and uh, you know similar similar I suppose um, yeah similar I suppose with a like just to get to grab kind of at a thin air a real specific example but um, if a if a a woman is looking at her future husband and sees that he's extremely driven, that he's you know, very, very driven towards his career, very, very driven towards um, doing something. He's spending, he's spending so much time and energy in that. I don't think that that's magically going to change once you're married. He's not going to suddenly 180 and spend all, all his time and attention on you. That's going to continue. So you have to ask yourself um, this same thing that's going to make him successful, this same thing that's um, that, I, that I might admire about him is going to take him away from me and he's going to be spending a lot of his time and attention elsewhere. Um, can I live with that till, till death do me part? So again, this, this has to do with more the psychological component of, and just some specific examples of being compatible with character. Obviously at the heart of this though is Christian character. Okay, so I've probably, uh, I've probably given enough of a background here um, just with, with, those, with those three points. Don't marry for money. Pay attention to the negatives. Pay attention to the positives. Make sure they're in keeping with your positives. Um, and then Chrysostom does this marvelous treatment of how Christ uh, loves his bride, the church, and how he overlooks all her ugliness and repulsiveness, reshaping and reforming her. And this section of Chrysostom's sermon seems more to have to do with those who are already married and who might be regretting, oh, if only I had known this, I would have chosen differently. He seems to be ministering to that and saying, well, look at what Christ did with his bride, the church. He, he not only took her um, in the state in which she was in, he did not abhor her ugliness, this from page 91, but changed her repulsiveness, reshaped her, reformed her, remitted her sins. You must imitate him. So here again is the call for either spouse. If you find yourself in, in a difficult marriage, um, to realize uh, what, you, what you can do, what God would have you do in the context of that marriage. And we're going to have more of that on page uh, 93. And a great reminder of one, of one of Chrysostom's foundational principles, one of the Bible's foundational principles, as well as the Catechism in regard to vocation and general and marriage in specific. So without further ado then, let's just pick up on page 93, very top. Even if you should say that your wife is incurably ill and after receiving much care still behaves in her own manner, still you must not cast her out. Remember we spoke at some length last week about the different kinds of sins. And there are, certain, there are certain sinful aspects of your spouse that you're simply not going to change. You have to learn how to cope with, mitigate, forgive. And of course, forgiveness is the heart of, of every marriage. Uh, without forgiveness, there is no marriage, at least not for long. Chrysostom continues, The limb with an incurable disease is not cut off. She also is your limb. For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Besides, with the limb, we receive no benefit from the treatment when the illness turns out to be incurable. But with a wife, even if she remains incurably ill, we will receive a great reward for our attempts to teach and educate her. Even if she does not benefit at all from our teaching, we will receive a great reward from God. All right, well, this could simply be flipped. Um, you know, it's... So from a husband's perspective to a, toward a wife who uh, remains incurably ill, to use Chrysostom's. But it could just as easily be a, 
a husband who remains incurably ill. So what's the principle here? The principle is that our service to our, to our neighbor, in this case our husband or our wife, has value aside from whether or not it is effective, has value aside from its pragmatic aside from its pragmatic va value, whether it works or not. And that value is that vocation is carried out before God. And it's that reminder of that principle in all our vocations, we're serving God first. And we're only serving, I, I mean in this sense, to put it quite starkly, we're only serving our neighbor, neighbor insofar as it is serving God. And to keep that in mind, you know, you can serve someone who is incorrigible, who is unchangeable, who is very bitter and nasty to you, and you can serve them without effect, and yet that has great and profound value as an offering unto God. This is one of the things where 20th century Lutheranism, we've kind of gotten off the rails because we're so terrified of this idea of merit or worthiness or earning or whatever. We're just, we dismiss this whole paradigm outright, and it's a shame. It takes away one of the chief comforts and consolations we had in vocation, and that is um, that God looks upon our work and blesses us on account of that work, um, whether or not it's effective in our neighbor or not. And that extends to, that extends to all vocations. You know, so, so you're not appreciated at work. God appreciates you. <laughs> God sees what you're doing. Do you serve God or do you serve man? Are you serving for the applause and recognition of man or for the applause and recognition of God? So let us then engage in all of our vocations, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's friendships and relationships, or whether it's in the context of the workplace. Let us serve others as serving God. Okay, so great point here by Chrysostom. Um, maybe just stick a finger somewhere around this area. We'll pick back up here in a minute. Um, do we have a mic? Are we running a microphone today? Right up front here. Uh, based on the text and how he uh, said that how to choose a wife instead of, you know, how to choose your spouse, mm -hmm. I believe that this is the commitment or the, the responsibility that God is putting on, on the husband mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stronger than on, on a wife, I believe. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't think it's essential to hold that um, in order to get something out of what Chrysostom's saying. I think you can have this kind of an entirely complementary, egalitarian, even in terms of the economy and ordering of the relationship view and still gain from what Chrysostom is saying. Um, so that's why I, I don't insist upon that, making a big deal about that, because I don't, I think whether one takes or leaves that, the rest remains true. But I do think it is the case that biblically um, and in terms of the catechism and in terms of this text, uh, you know, with, 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 with privilege comes responsibility. And God has, in this sense, so ordered things that a man would be the head of the wife and the wife his body, and that the man would then be the head of the household. And with that sort of privileging, at least as we see it, I'm not sure if that's really even the right way to see it, uh, comes great responsibility. And comes, the, comes the, the ultimate responsibility for how things go. And also, um, yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. I think the first, I think the first thing we husbands have to do uh, if, our, if our domestic life is a mess is we have to take full responsibility. <coughs> I have to say, we have to say it's 100% it's on us. Now that's not to self-victimize, it's not to say that you can't parse things out, it's not to say you can't say this is, you know, my wife is culpable here, my children are culpable there. All of that may be true. But you have to realize that as, as the husband, as the Adam, as the... Remember that psalm where the, where the wife is like a... I can't remember what it is. Like an olive plant? And the children are like the shoots. Do you remember this toward the end of the Psalms? It's just this beautiful imagery. But I'm quite convinced that this comes from the idea that um, Adam, uh, man, is the gardener. 
and it's his job to tend the garden. And the, the psalm picks up on this, uh, trying to show husbands the way in which we ought to look at wife and children as, as one organic whole and as the direct product of who we ourselves are and what we ourselves do. Um, it's, a, it's an opportunity for um, rejoicing in the scriptures. Um, the, uh, the other side of that is, you know, if, if I've, as a man you're kind of, you're looking at your olive plant and, and the shoot, the shoots, and they're, they're withered and dying and um, giving you no joy, you're the gardener. You're the gardener. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there is, there is a kind of emphasis put on the male in terms of choosing a mate, in terms of running the household, in terms of leading the marriage. I think that that's unavoidable. So, thank you for that. Yes? Just wanted to mention that uh, the Old Testament Hosea, uh, he was an example. I, I never could understand why that was in the Bible, you know, where he was ordered by, not ordered by, he was told by God to uh, marry a uh, Gomer, which was a prostitute. So, that to me, um, you know, obviously it shows us the love of God and how marriage is used by God as a, a platform for us to understand his love for us. And uh, so the cross that he carried, uh, Hosea, was that he was married to her and she was unfaithful. So mm -hmm. I, I think that helps me understand, you know, the real big picture of, well, how my marriage and family fit in, but how basically God's and his love for us through Jesus. And uh, we are the bride of Christ, and we are unfaithful, but he's not, he is faithful. So anyway, yeah, I mean, it just connects a lot of things, connects a lot of dots. So, Well, absolutely, and I thank you for bringing that up. It really rather illustrates the point quite starkly. Now, Hosea, in some respects, uh, with Gomer, right? Um, yeah is a unique case because, of course, he's to be a living, embodied par parable of God's love for unfaithful Israel. And so, um, so Hosea is to remain in that, not only, not only marry a prostitute, but then as she sort of continues in her ways, he is to remain faithful. Uh, that, that really goes beyond, um, above and beyond the call of duty for your average husband and wife, where if there is sexual immorality, uh, one, may, one may then lawfully and, and rightly give a divorce should one choose. Uh, Hosea, that case is different, isn't it? And that to illustrate the, the unconditional, unconditional love of God. Now that has its that parallel in every marriage though, of course. So aside from sexual unfaithfulness, aside from adultery that, that breaks the one flesh union, we ought to love in just that way, unconditionally. Um, and that, that means, too, that, you know, if you're... So in the New Testament way, if, you're, if your wife is acting or your husband is acting like Gomer, aside from the sexual unfaithfulness, I mean, some... some choose to remain faithful even in the face of uh, sexual unfaithfulness, and that's fine. It's commendable in many respects. Um, others not, and that's fine, and that's commendable. Um, but aside from that, to forgive that's, and love unconditionally, that's really the model and the template. Okay, let's, uh, let's go a little further in crystal storm. So we're in the middle of that paragraph, I'm going to pick up maybe, it looks like, seven lines down from the start of that paragraph on page 93, just right at the semicolon. But with a wife, even if she remains incurably ill, we, re we will receive a great reward for our attempts to teach and educate her, even if she does not benefit at all from our teaching. We will receive a great reward from God for our patience because we have shown so much forbearance through fear of Him. So patience, forbearance, uh, fear of Him, respect of Him. You know, I think that that's... Think of how the... Think of how the world construes that. The world construes that as... 
well, you're not happy, you should leave. Um, this person is doing you wrong. You should, you should get out. And um, you should put yourself first. And then you've kind of got this cliche sort of thing of like, well, they're just, you know, my parents are just staying together for us kids, or they're just staying together out of sense of duty. And this is all in our, in our culture spat upon. But look at this. I mean, look at it from God's angle. It's almost entirely different, isn't it? All those things that I just said and described are commendable because what, what would it be if, if two sinners in a very difficult marriage, in a very difficult circumstance, out of a sense of duty, stay together? What would that be? That would be perfect love of God and fear of God. It would be setting aside their own personal happiness in order to serve God and do what's Right, and, and in serving God and doing what's right, they end up serving their children and larger society as well. So this is, this is the call. It's completely contrary to, to again, our, our romanticism-infected uh, culture and way of looking at things. But to do one's duty, to stay with patience and forbearance, to serve even when there's no ostensible fruit, um, this is all service rendered to God and thus has infinite value and is infinitely fruitful. So while the world poo-poos these things as like curse, they are in fact blessing. It, they are in fact wonderful deeds, not wretched deeds as the world sees them, but wonderful deeds uh, in, in the sight of God. So I think this is such a beautiful section. I definitely highlighted this in my text. It's a great section worth returning to, worth... Um, you know, as you run into people who are struggling in their marriage, worth having these things in mind that you can share with them. That great, great is the reward from God for our patience. All right, Chrysostom continues. We have endured her evil ways with gentleness and have kept our member. For a wife is a member which is related to us. And because of this, we especially ought to love her. This is just what Paul was teaching when he said, Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, made from his flesh and his bones. Just as Eve came from the side of Adam, he says, So we come from the side of Christ. This is what he means when he says, Made from his flesh and his bones. Um, this all is referent to uh, Ephesians 5, and the editors put in there a variant reading of Ephesians 5. We all know that Eve came from the side of Adam himself. Scripture has told this plainly, that God put Adam into a deep sleep and took one of his ribs and fashioned the woman. But how can we show that the church also came from the side of Christ? Scripture explains this too. When Christ was lifted up on the cross after he had been nailed to it and had died, one of the soldiers pierced his side, and there came out blood and water. Reference to John 19.34. From that blood and water the whole church has risen, has arisen. He himself bears witness to this when he says, Unless one is born again of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but you can, glimpse, you can glimpse Jesus as the everlasting Father here, as Isaiah calls him, and the virgin Father, because it's on the cross and from his side he begets Eve um, through, the blood, through the blood of the chalice and the water of holy baptism, and then likewise through water and spirit. Remember what John says in his epistle? It's... it's um, water, blood, and spirit, these three testify. And in John's gospel, it's these three things that are poured out by the crucified Christ. Water and, and blood from his side, and the Holy Spirit, he hands over, he traditions the spirit. So these three things come out, water, blood, and spirit. These three, these three testify um, that you belong to him, that you are redeemed. And you have that, that birth of water and the spirit that he refers to in John 3. Um, directly then connected to this reality of, of Christ as the new Adam, as the virgin husband. From his side is taken the, the, virgin, the new Eve, the virgin woman. 
and from these two ever virgin uh, is conceived of water and the spirit uh, the children of God so it's, it's all there it's all beautiful it's all John's theology and uh, John, named after the evangelist John Chrysostom, picks up on it wonderfully here. I don't know about this next reading. Um, right after the footnote 11 in the text, he, so this is Chrysostom saying, John the evangelist calls the blood spirit. I don't know about that. We receive birth from the water of baptism and we are nourished by his blood. See, that's true. That's absolutely right. Do you see how we are made from his flesh and from his bones as we are given birth and nourished by that blood and water? Just as the woman was fashioned while Adam slept, so also when Christ had died, the church was formed from his side. So all this stuff we've been talking about also is, I mean, you remember how how Jesus says to um, says to his mother, woman, behold your son, and says to the disciple whom he loved, behold your mother. I mean, I, that's what's going on here, is all this stuff. It's not just, it's not, it's not that, it's not that Jesus just needs Mary to have a place to stay, <laughs> you know, or something like this, or he's worried that John's going to become lonely. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's true, it, it's true enough that, but that whole, te- that whole text speaks of something deeper. You know, and in English it's rendered, he, t- he took, he, John, well, the disciple whom he loved, took her into his home from that very hour, except into his home. There's nothing like that in the text. It's unto himself. It, it would be, it's kind of untranslatable, but it would be something like unto himself. He took her as his own. So it's, it's, much more, it's much more deep understanding, and I think much more profound understanding the church in a very deep sense as, um, as mother. And I think its origin is there. Because otherwise you've got this real lopsidedness. You've got this, you've got father, but no mother. <laughs> right? Um, so you have to have, you have to have, you have to have mother, you have to have this other side. Um, who, by the way, is made into one flesh, you know, spiritually speaking. Gosh, it's such a great mystery. There's just so much there. Sorry about that. I could digress and think about this forever. It's just fantastic stuff. Okay. Um, Next paragraph, 94. We must love our wife not only because she is a part of ourselves and had the beginning of her creation from us, but also because God made a law about this when he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here's John Chrysostom clearly emphasizing the role um, of of the husband as the initiator. Woman came from man. And then there's this this admonition that man leaves his father's house and cleaves to his wife. The two become one flesh. Um, Picking back up, Paul reads us this law in order to surround us and drive us toward this love. See the wisdom of the apostle. He does not lead us to the love of our wives by divine laws only or by human reasoning only. But by interchanging them, he makes a combination of both. In this way, the wiser and higher-minded may be led by the heavenly arguments, while the weaker may be led to love by the natural and earthly arguments. This is why he begins with Christ's righteous acts and introduces his exhortation by saying, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then again, from human experience, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Then again, from Christ, because we are members of his body made from his flesh and his bones. Then again, from humanity, from this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and shall cleave to his wife. After reading this law, Paul says, this is a great mystery. Now, I don't know, this is another interesting exegetical move here. So, see what you think of it. How is it a great mystery? Tell me. Because the girl who has always been kept at home and has never seen the bridegroom from the first day loves and cherishes him as her own body. So, what's the principle here? Probably some kind of arranged marriage and or extremely formal to the point where even if it's not arranged, it's at the, it would be at the husband's initiative and, it would, um, and he would have very little information going on to it. Most of his is based on who her family is and their identity and then the acceptance would be based on le- less on who he personally is and more on his family and their identity within the community. So that foundational to understanding that at least in order to understand his point of this of this being the great mystery. Again, I don't know about this exegetical move exactly. What he says is true. I just don't know if it's the right exegetical move. He continues, again the husband who has never seen her, never shared even the fellowship of speech with her from the first day prefers her to everyone, to his friends, his relatives, even his parents. I don't know, there's something really attractive in that idea. The over-analysis of whether this is going to work and whether or not we're compatible and all of this stuff. Like, there's something really refreshing of just saying, we have no idea about any of that, but God, we entrust ourselves that God's going to make us compatible. And I'm going to start as much as I can as kind of a tabla rasa and, and you too, and somehow we will form our right and forge our new identity as one flesh together. Isn't that, refre- isn't that kind of a refreshing, interesting take? I don't know. So much, of, so much of what we have is paralysis by analysis, overanalyzation, and the assumption, do you fit with me? Because I sure as heck am not going to change. Do I fit with you? Because you sure as heck are not going to change. How can we negotiate a partnership? I don't know. It's kind of where romanticism leads, I think, is into this ugliness. If you go into marriage thinking you know everything only to find out you don't, wouldn't it be better to go into marriage realizing or knowing you don't know anything and then finding out that in that way you do? (laughs) Seems to me like we've got We've got it exactly upside down. All right, well, enough on that. The parents, in turn, if they are deprived of their money for another reason, will complain, grieve, and take the perpetrators to court. Yet they entrust to a man, whom often they have never seen before or come to know at all, both their own daughter and a large sum as dowry. They rejoice as they do this and do not consider it a loss. As they see their daughter led away, They do not bring to mind their closeness. They do not grieve or complain, but instead they give thanks. They consider it an answer to their prayers when they see their daughter led away from their home, taking a large sum of money with her. Paul had all this in mind. How the couple leave their parents and bind themselves to each other, and how the new relationship becomes more powerful than the long-established familiarity. He saw that this was not a human accomplishment. It is God who sows these loves in men and women. He causes both those who give in marriage and those who are married to do this with joy. Therefore, Paul said, this is a great mystery. All right, well, that's Chrysostom's take on a great mystery. I don't know about that. I tend to think that that line exegetically refers back to Christ and his church and the living parable that our marriages are that reflect that deeper mystery that even has its, its root before creation. Um, but again, even if, I, even if the exegesis here is, in, is contested, the point isn't. Okay, any, any thoughts or questions you have or do we want to move on a little further? Yes, uh, please. You make this sound really appealing, but <laughs> right. I think the sin, sinful nature of man uh, debunks this because of the, let's say if you're a father and you're marrying, you're getting, having your daughter married, you, you, you know, the sinful nature of man would be, what am I going to get out of this? What, mm-hmm. what can their family bring to the table? What, 
you know, and there's just so much intrigue and so much garbage in arranged marriages that uh, it's a good point. It 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 goes haywire right off the bat. I think it's a good point. Yeah, I would say too um, that that it requires this huge infrastructure to work. This whole system of like family identity and connectivity and pride in who you are and these sort of internal checks and balances that are multi-generational and um, yeah, it takes this whole infrastructure. And even with that, Bob, I'm I'm quite sure you're right that I'm suffering from grass is greener on the other side here uh, type of phenomenon. And and sinful nature is is quite capable of ruining either. It's just, uh, you know, when you get sick of this grass, the other grass does look green. <laughs> so maybe you want to go over there for a little while, but I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it takes a cultural attitudinal shift, too, for, for marriage being like, you know, we want something that works not solely for our happiness, but for the good of others, for the good of family in the broadest sense for the good of society, of which we are part locally and, and in a more extended fashion, our, our nation, our country. I mean, it takes all of those attitudes to be in place, but we're such a selfish people and so turned in on ourselves, it's impossible. And, it, and as you said, it would just become a, a matter of like upward mobility and greed and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, any other thoughts or shall we... Uh, Drift on here. All right, 95, bottom of. Just as in the case of children, the baby which is born immediately from the first sight recognizes its parents without being able to speak. So also the hearts of the bride and bridegroom are entwined together at the first sight without anyone to introduce them, to advise them, or to counsel them. Maybe a little idealistic here? I don't know. Then seeing that this happened also above all with Christ and his church, Paul was astonished and amazed. How did this happen with Christ and the church? As the bridegroom leaves his father and comes to his bride, so Christ left his father's throne and came to his bride. And here I think is like sort of the biblical substance of the the role of man as initiator. sort of the privilege, but also the responsibility embodied in this, that that Christ leaves his father's throne to come after his bride and husbands to wife is modeled after this. This plan was in place before there was such a thing as husbands and wives. And so husbands and wives are created to reflect this glory that was before the foundation of the world. Chrysostom continues, He, uh, namely Christ, did not summon us on high, but himself came to us. Of course, when you hear that he left, you must not imagine a change, but a condescension. Great, Great Christological point. For even when he was with us, he was still with the Father. Ah, that's just beautiful Christology right there. Yeah. It doesn't take away from the fact that you can say he came to us. Not that he drew us to him, but he came to us. There's the initiator. All right, continuing. For this reason, when Paul said, this is a great mystery, he added, I understand it in relation to Christ and the church. Yeah, see, now I'm tracking. Since you know, therefore, how great a mystery marriage is and how great a matter it represents, do not consider marriage lightly or casually. In particular, you must not seek money when you are about to take a bride. You must consider that marriage is not a business venture, but a fellowship for life. I don't know exactly what word he uses there. It would have been nice for the... uh, editor to give us that because probably in Greek it's koinonia, which is synonymous with communion. It's probably a play on words there that our communion with Christ as bride and bridegroom reflects in the koinonia of husband and wife, the communion of husband and wife. And if not, it would have been nice to know that too. Chrysostom continues, I hear many of you saying, so and so got rich from his marriage, although he was poor before. Since he took a rich wife, 
He enjoys wealth and luxury now. What are you saying, man? Do you desire to profit from your wife? Aren't you ashamed? Don't you blush? Why don't you sink into the ground? <laughs> Why don't you sink into the ground if you seek to benefit yourself in such a way? What kind of words are these for a husband? I've got to start, I've got to start doing a compendium of early church father insults because these are great. These are great. Oh, and biblical, of course, too. I mean, we've got to throw it all in there. There's such great phraseology. In Kings, we had vexed and sullen. That's such a great expression. Stop being so vexed and sullen. And then here, this is great. Why don't you just sink into the ground? All right, here he, uh, here he makes a really good point. Um, so, so again, with, with the overarching principle in mind, husband seeking a wife, and of course we've talked about how spouse to spouse, this is general enough to work. Um, so, so what kind of wife are you looking for? A wife has only one duty, to preserve what we have gathered, to protect our income, to take care of our household. Notice the, the sort of um, preeminent role of man, the headship role of man here, and, and the, uh, not only the, the authority but the responsibility here. And then the wife being called to, in Chrysostom's words, preserve what we have gathered, to protect our income, to take care of our household. After all, God gave her to us for this purpose, to help us. Remember, this goes back to uh, Eden where God says, um, God explicitly calls woman man's helper. Going to make a helper. So, and even that expression itself shows the preeminence, the headship of man in this economy. Again, just to go back to the basics, we're not saying that man has some kind of intrinsic value that woman doesn't have. That's not the point. Man and woman are equal before God. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. There's no, there's no hierarchy there. In the ordering of the relationship in earthly time and space, there is a hierarchy there. Not a, it's not a statement of value. It's not a statement of inequality. It's just saying there's an ordering. And the way that God has ordered it is um, that the wife is the helper of the husband. So God gave her to us for this purpose, to help us in these matters as well as in everything else. So I think there's like sort of the one duty is helper. Helpmate, yes. Yeah, I think that comes from the K, uh, King James Version, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because helper could be, uh, like, what would be, what would be the worst read of helper? The worst read of helper would be, like, servant. Or, yeah? So, or were, were you going to say something else? Oh, I just said employee. Employee, yeah, yeah. Not, not like that. So, so then, okay, so then helpmate does make sense, doesn't it? Because mate expresses the equality and uh, help expresses the role, help me. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Okay, now here's an interesting distinction and much lost to us, of course, because of our two-income world that we've created and how we can all bemoan this is one of the greatest evils ever to befall us. In general, our life is composed of two spheres of activity, the public and the private. Is that true or false? I think it's absolutely true. I think it's absolutely true. You've got, the, you've got what happens in your home, you've got your home life, and then you've got everything that happens outside your home, the public life. So public and private, I think this is true. When God divided these two, he assigned the management of the household to the woman. But to the men, he assigned all the affairs of the city, all the business of the marketplace, courts, councils, chambers, armies, and all the rest. In short, man, is his primary vocation is uh, to the to the external, and uh, woman's primary vocation is to the, to the internal. Man to the public, woman to the private. Are, what exceptions are there to this? Well, I mean, one, one example, uh, the husband has a rather profound duty inside the house to teach the faith, right? So he's got a profound duty and responsibility in terms of the private life. What about the public life for the female? Well, she's got profound 
duty and responsibility there too. I mean, it's not just we don't exist in a vacuum. And of course, uh, the wife does go to the marketplace. <laughs> the wife does engage in relationships, uh, particularly um, around, around the neighborhood and, and, and think of the, the schooling for the children and that kind of thing and all those relationships she built. So this isn't white and black. This isn't white and black. This is one of emphasis. And I think that that's important to point out, lest we think that this is, uh, lest we dismiss this as being simply too white and black and thus not accurate, and we dismiss the whole thing. No, we can see it in a nuanced way and see the, the truth of, of which uh, Chrysostom is here speaking. So, when God divided these two, he assigned the management of the household to the woman, but to the men he assigned all the affairs of the city, all the business of the marketplace, courts, council chambers, armies, and all the rest. A woman cannot throw a spear or hurl a javelin, but she can take up the distaff. I don't know what a distaff is. I was going to look that up, and I forgot. Does anyone know? Uh, if anybody has a Google, let me know. So take up the distaff, weave cloth, and manage everything else well that concerns the household. She cannot give an opinion on the council, but she can give her opinion in the household. Now, remember how, how we view this. This isn't, this isn't the idea of like, well, men can vote, but women can't because women are inferior. That's not the principle here. The principle is that the unit isn't the individual. The unit is the family. And so thus, the head of the family represents the family, not himself, the family publicly. That's the idea. And that, by the way, is the... Now, frankly, is the principle, and it's not a wrong or hateful principle in any sense of why one can, why one can be against women's suffrage um, without being sexist. You're not saying that women are lesser or incapable and thus can't vote. You're saying, I redefine the unit, not as an individual man or an individual woman of 18 or above, but I define the unit as a family, not an individual, and thus the family should have one vote, and whose primary role is in the external to cast that vote? The husband, but that husband better be, his vote isn't representative of his own desires, it's re representative of the desires and the welfare of the family as a unit. I mean, this too is why voting in the, in the church, um, in, in our polity where we have voters' assemblies, was, you know, again, how does this get painted today? Like, we're all barbarians, sexist, patriarchal people. That was never the understanding. It was the understanding that there's a family unit. I mean, this is also why Paul says to women that they ought to be silent in the church, and if they've got a question, they ought to ask their husband. Why? Because he doesn't want it to disintegrate into this chaos of every individual, every man and woman for themselves. The, the unit is not the individual man or woman. The unit is the family, and there's a hierarchy and ordering of that. But we've lost all this. And it's not, as you can see, based in any way upon hateful or bigoted or sexist type of sentiment. It's on the redefinition of, of what the unit of society is. All right. Um, So, uh, top of 97, often indeed whatever her husband knows of household matters, she knows better. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that true? So true. So true. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Frequently nurturing the children. Frequently nurturing the children because she spends so much more time. This is, I mean, this is generalized speech, but she spends more time. She's more emotionally in tuned. Um, cooking and food and what's good and what's healthy. If men, if it were up to men, what would we do? Hot dogs. Heck of a lot of hot dogs and hamburgers. Heck of a lot of Twinkies. Whatever we happen to grab on the way home from work. But, but how is it for women? I mean, even if they're not great cooks, they've got this idea of, okay, there's going to be this diversity of foods and yeah. nutrition. Yeah. It's a chemistry class. That they're looking for new recipes and Absolutely, yeah. The recipes, are, yeah. So this, I mean, again, um, and, and, and of course this is noxious to worldly people in, in our day, in our age, but I guess I just don't care anymore. Um, 
there, it's almost as if God designs men to be kind of rational, thick-skinned, bullheaded, you know, like equipped to deal with the outside world. Yeah, and it's almost as if he designs women to be nurturing, compassionate, wholesome nest makers, which is precisely what the domestic estate calls for. <laughs> it's almost as if he designs us for these two very roles. Yeah. Uh, again, I know I'm probably irking many of our online listeners, but they're not here to contend with me, so I can't get away with it. Uh, but, but no, I think, uh, consider these things. Consider these things. And even if they're not, even if they're not, I mean, this is our American way. We always find the exception and then overturn the rule with it, that which is ridiculous. The exception proves the rule. The exception demonstrates that the general rule is true. Not all men are going to be great in the public sphere. Not all women are going to be great in the domestic sphere. But as a general truth, look at how the sexes have been designed by God. And these two, broadly speaking, estates, the public and the private, have been designed by God. And see, see his artistry and his mastery. Okay. She cannot manage the affairs of the city well, but she can raise children well. Yeah, and this is something too. Like in our overly egalitarian world, it's like, oh yeah, well, why couldn't a woman be, be president? Well, if you're just thinking of it in terms of equality, of course she could. Of course. But if you're thinking in terms of ordering and economy and psychology, why couldn't she be? Because men aren't gated to respect a woman, and they're not gated to take orders from a woman. And if they do, it's begrudgingly and or with their own interests in mind. Um, there's dynamics there that, are, that exist between the sexes that we in our naivete have, have called, well, this, anything else is bigoted. <laughs> and so we're going to hold to this without actually considering that or its effects. I mean, unknown yet, unknown yet is how a, f how a woman president would engage or be treated by the rest of the world which doesn't see things according to our enlightened, enlightened quotations manner. Um, who knows? Who knows? So I, these are things that, again, our, our society has rejected outright. Chrysostom and um, has not. And I, I guess I find myself, for better or for worse, um, with Chrysostom on a number of these issues. So, you know, he says, he says she cannot manage the affairs of the city well. But she, and, and if she can, it's sort of like alien, though. It's like, but she can raise children well, which are the greatest of treasures. Yeah, who thinks that today? Certainly not. In fact, many, many today sacrifice their children for the sake of this. So many women sacrifice their private calling, which is the nurturing of their children, for the sake of <coughs> pursuing this public calling. And that's one of the great downfalls of our, of our civilization. So that we hand our children over to daycares or schools that by and large are governed and run by government, there's this real disturbing, real disturbing trend where government tries to take over the role of mother in exactly this way, and where government very clearly, as I've articulated earlier, tries to take over the role of father. That one quite acute. Where you have, where you have mother and father no longer existing as mother and father, but as, as, as existing as taxpayers and consumers. The real mothering and the real fathering are done by government, we've got big trouble. And that's pretty much what we have, societally speaking. Big trouble. Okay, sorry to depress you. She can discover the misbehavior of the maids and oversee the virtue of the servants. Isn't that also a female talent? She can, uh, she can discover misbehavior left and right. I have to confess, like growing up, my dad was always naive. He had no clue what the misbehavior in the household was. My mom had a sixth sense. She knew right away when we kids were up to something. And I can only imagine it's the same way because I can see how my kids kind of like, you know, they know I'm not that big of a threat. 
They know I don't really know the inside scoop. That's so true. All right, Chrysostom continues. She can free her husband from all cares and worries for the house, the storerooms, the woolworking, the preparation of meals, the maintenance of clothing. Yeah, and you know, this is the joy. This is the joy is that the husband would take away all the external pressures and stresses and the wife would take away all the internal. I mean, that's the, that's the gift. Don't worry about that. I've got that under control. Don't worry about this. I've got this under control. That's the mutual help and the complementary nature here. Um, she takes care of all the other matters which it is not fitting or easy for a man to undertake no matter how competitive he might be. After all, this is the work of God's generosity and wisdom, that he who is good at the greater matters is inferior and quite useless in the lesser matters, so that the help of a woman is necessary to him. I mean, just one example of the superiority of women in the domestic estate. My wife works. When, I, when we had little babies, it's gotten better as they're older, but when we had little babies, they wanted mom. didn't matter how soft or nurturing I tried to be, holding them in my hairy arms, smelling like a man. <laughs> with a husky, deeper voice. They wanted mom. That's it. She was the superior. She was the, the puzzle piece they needed. And it didn't matter what I did or, or could do. Um, you know, and it just to our peril, we've ignored these differences between the sexes and these various strengths and weaknesses that we have. All right. Um, if God had made man capable in both areas, it would have been easy for men to despise womankind. If, on the other hand, God had assigned the greater and more important matters to woman, he would have filled women with presumption. For this reason, he did not give... I mean, isn't this... Oh gosh, isn't this feminism? Feminism is the presumption of women. We can do everything that men can do and do it better. We can do everything that women can do and do it better. I mean, that's the presumption and arrogance of, of womankind. And it's just... I mean. It's its own special version of insanity. Every bit as insane as a man thinking just because he can have his body surgically and chemically altered to where he can bear children, that this is somehow natural or good or makes him equal to women in, in, this, in this vocational calling. It's, it's every bit as insane. For this reason, he did not give both spheres to one sex, lest the other seem inferior and superfluous. Neither did he assign both spheres to each sex equally. Chrysostom, giving our whole, our whole progressive society a, a, a trip to the woodshed here. Neither did he, capital H, neither did God assign both spheres to each sex equally. Lest from equality of honor there should arise strife and contention. Well, we don't see any of that, do we? if women strove to be counted worthy of the same precedence as their husbands. God provided for peace by reserving the suitable, the suitable position for each. He divided our life into these two parts and gave the more necessary and important to the man, but the lesser and inferior part to the woman. Yeah, and I don't know about that. I mean, I think that that strikes us as kind of unnecessarily confrontational there, the lesser and inferior. I mean, I'd, I would push back against that a little. In what sense is it lesser or inferior raising children in the way they should go onto eternal life and children beget children and so forth? I don't know about this. I don't know about lesser and inferior. I just say different. It's different. In this way, he arranged that we should admire the man more because we need his service more and that because the woman has a humbler form of service, she would not rebel against her husband. I mean, while there's truth to be extracted from that, I, again, I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that that's, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't couch it this way. I wouldn't speak of it this way. There's, there's something hidden in here though, I think he's kind of digging out. I'm just not sure he's quite there and I, and I don't think I'm there either. But the, great, the greatness is in, is in the selflessness rather. The greatness of woman is in her selflessness, and the greatness of man is his selflessness. And those take on two different forms. And, and then 
the ultimate calling of man to selflessness does take on, in this economy, a greater form. How so? Women and children first. Yeah. I mean, when the boat's sinking, a man doesn't use his strength and pick women and children out of the boat in order to save himself. Such a man would be beaten down by the rest of the men. Right? So uh, the, the greatness of man is precisely in his willingness to lay down his life for wife and child. And then there's, yeah, and then there's from this view, like a secondary greatness of woman that she, of course, would, would do so in turn, but only in turn. So I think that, anyway, I'm just trying to articulate, I, in a, I think in a better way, at least a more palatable way to us in the 21st century, what Chrysostom is trying to get at here. Because I just don't know that you need to go to this lesser and inferior kind of move, humbler, not rebelling. I don't know. I don't know that you need to go there. But we are, uh, we are out of time. So let's, um, let's drop uh, down to the bottom of 97, and we will pick up there next week. Um, the, intention, the intention is to uh, just get as far as we can and then, and then call it a day. It looks like we've got about 17 pages left. So I'm kind of thinking that by next week, we'll, we'll probably skip around a little bit rather than read straight through, but by next week we'll be done. And then the following week, we'll go on to, uh, to Wolfmuller and his text. Sound, sound like a plan? All right. The Lord be with you.